Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have raised up ministers all over the world. And as Christians, we can go really to any country in, in all of this earth and find brothers and sisters in the faith who are journeying with you. And as our youth have gone down to Tennessee to Snowbird, we pray that as they gather with youth from all over North America, maybe even further afield, that you would bless them richly. That this would be an opportunity for them to see that they are not alone. That there are many others just like them trying to figure out high school and what they're going to do with their life and, and hold firm to the gospel that they've learned, maybe from their family, maybe not. Maybe from a local church who took them under their wing. Lord, we pray for this next generation and weeks like this can fortify them in their faith. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be abundantly generous with them. Uh, give them ears to hear and soft hearts to receive the preaching and the teaching of your word at Snowbird. Be with all of the leaders in every capacity for the preachers and prayer leaders and uh, all of the group leaders uh, that they would speak into our youth in a constructive way that reveals Jesus Christ more fully to the glory of God the Father. As we endeavor to do the very same thing here this morning, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be upon us. Would he help us to see and to understand, to hear and to learn and to be changed by the reading of your holy word? Please bless me. Carry me along as I endeavor to share your words. Glorify yourself in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Christian claim of the supremacy of Jesus Christ seems self-evident to us who have been in the church for so long. And it almost comes to a place where you say, well, what more is there to say? Jesus is supreme. He's fully God. He's fully man. I would just like to suggest, though, that this is a very paradoxical thing to say. It is a strange thing to hold to. To say that Jesus Christ is a man is somewhat easier for people, as is evidenced by all of the non-Christians who, who can claim that Jesus was some kind of a man. But let us just remember where the life of Jesus ended. The life of Jesus ended on a cross about that size. And he died while he had nails through his hands and his feet and he labored to breathe. He was nailed to a cross because that's where the worst of criminals were put. He was buried because a, a rich man from the Sanhedrin had pity on him and maybe even was a believer, but he was given the body as if it was just thrown away. Jesus, in the mind of the world at his time, except for a very small few, was a criminal who deserved to be killed. And here we are, some 2,000 years later, saying that he is supreme. We, we say, not only is he fully man, that everything that makes you and me human, he shares. His human body, human mind, human emotions, human soul, human will. In addition to that, though, we say that he is fully God. This is astounding. It's 
You cannot make that kind of a claim and really believe it unless God has worked a miracle in your mind and in your heart. It's impossible. So there was a group of people in the early church. There's still people today who, who say there was something special about Jesus. He, he was a man, but he was more than a man. And so you get uh, groups that say, well, maybe he was an angel who came down and took on human flesh. And we know that angels are creatures. And so it's so much easier for us to conceptualize the death of an angel, even an innocent angel. I would suggest to you that it's easier to make that leap to say that that we killed an angel that was dressed up like a man than to say that we killed God. That we murdered the one who gave us life. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is wrestling with that. He's he's trying to argue against a group of people who are trying to save Jesus in some way from the ill repute that comes with the cross, saying He was more than a man. He was an angel sent to do God's will. And the writer of Hebrews says, you've not gone far enough. This is no angel. This is Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament who took on human flesh, who carried our sin to the cross like a goat on the Day of Atonement. And we killed Him. Last week, we described Jesus in a sevenfold description. And the sevenfold is important. The author is saying, I want you to know how supremely and fully preeminent Jesus Christ is. That's the first seven. Today we're going to look at seven Old Testament citations that make the point that Jesus is preeminent. Not only in this creation, but over all reality. Even over the other created realm, which is the angelic realm, the spiritual world. Jesus is preeminent there. Not as the first of many angels, but as the creator of angels. That's what we're going to look at today. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? It's near the end of your Bible. The book of Hebrews. While you're finding your place, just a couple of comments. The text that we're going to look at today is a complicated text. It, it, it cites seven Old Testament passages, maybe eight. There's one citation that is a combination of two. There's seven citations. And then there's multiple New Testament places that we could go to affirm the truths that are being said. So, so really there's two ways that we could go about this. We could take seven weeks to go through this text, or we could do it all in one week. We've opted to do it all in one week, but that means that we're not going to be able to go to every single citation. In fact, we're going to stay in this text, but, but I'm going to give you all of the citations that you can go and do a little bit deeper devotional study yourself to see the way in which the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brings this wealth of Old Testament Scripture to bear on our understanding of who Jesus is. The reason we're keeping it all together is because all of these citations are working together to one very important application point. 
which we get at the beginning of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles open, please stand. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin in verse 4 and proceed down to the end of chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's the point that we made last week, that Jesus is superior to angels. Now today's Scripture reading, making the point that He is superior to angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Or again, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to Me a Son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he has also said, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is the Word of God. Praise be to God. Please be seated. The author of Hebrews gives us four reasons that we can be absolutely sure that Jesus is superior to angels. So I'll give you these four and then we'll look at each one in order. First, Jesus is called God's Son. Second, Jesus is worshipped by angels. Third, Jesus exercises divine sovereignty and authority. And fourth, Jesus is the creator of all things. Every one of these statements demonstrates that Jesus is superior to angels because none of these things is true of angels. 
Let's take a look at the first one. Jesus is superior to angels because he is called God's son. Taking a look at the first part of verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is taken right out of Psalm 2. And really, the whole psalm is in view here. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. So when a king of, of Judah or Israel would be enthroned as king in the line of David, they would say Psalm 2. And what would be applied to the, to the king, the Davidic king, would be that as king, you bear the title of Son of God. That's the original context for Psalm 2. That's not exactly how the writer of Hebrews or the author of Hebrews is using it here. But one of the titles that the, the purely human Davidic king would, would receive as part of his status or vocation as the leader of God's people in Jerusalem was that on the day of his enthronement, it would be said that God had begotten him as a son of God. Now, everybody understood, unlike in other religions, such as in Egypt, that that David and his descendants were not themselves equal to God. And yet they were God's representative on earth. And that's the whole idea here to begin with. In its original context in Psalm 2, when, when we read, You are my son today, the day of your enthronement, I have begotten you. Now... You are given, because you are the Davidic king, authority to represent me to the people as if you were my son. And so the psalm goes on and it says, why do the nations rage? Why do the the peoples make plans? Why do they fight against God's son? Meaning, God's people who are led by the king, the Davidic king in Jerusalem. Why not make peace with Israel? And we know that that idea goes all the way back to Genesis 12, right? Those who bless you and your offspring, Abraham, will be blessed. But those who curse you will be cursed. Same thinking here. As we see Abraham's family growing and then God appoints a descendant of Abraham to be king, David, and then to represent God to his people and to all of the nations as God's begotten son now that's not how the author of hebrews is reading this psalm he's saying that that is but a shadow of the real thing and we know that because of last week's sermon right we know that we're dealing with a man who's not merely a man we're dealing with god himself but psalm 2 applies to jesus why because he's also a son of david According to Paul's gospel, which is our gospel, the gospel of God, of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus, being the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is also, according to the flesh, adopted into the messianic line of David, which stretches back all the way to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Perez, all the way down to David through the Davidic kings, to Jesus Himself. And now, therefore, because we know something about who Jesus is, that He is God Himself, and He's also the Son of David, now we read Psalm 2 and we say, oh my, 
This enthronement psalm about a merely human king was talking about so much more. It was always anticipating, always looking forward to the time when God's Son would become a son of David and reign as God's representative over every nation. I could include from Jerusalem, for that is still to come. Now the question, to which angel has God ever made such a proclamation? Search your Scriptures. To which angel did God ever say, Today I have begotten you. Now you are my son, my representative, my spokesperson. You speak and reign with the authority of my own self. There is no such angel. So we know that Jesus is superior. This same psalm is cited in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. Look it up. You'll see this very same teaching that I just gave you coming out in Acts 13. We also see in Romans 1, 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Now you might ask yourself, well, hold on a minute. When did Jesus become the Son of God? Was it that He was the Son of God eternally? Always and forever? Yes, absolutely. That we know that Jesus is God Himself, the second person of the Trinity. But this title, Son of God, because it's so wrapped up in the Davidic kingdom, this idea, you read through the Psalms, and it's often applied to David and his descendants who sit on David's throne, that we have to see that the Son of God uh, idea has royal ramifications, which are seeds planted in the Davidic kingdom that only come to full bloom in Jesus Christ. And so he is declared to be the Son of God, which he always was, but it's affirmed, it's, it's uh, confirmed and, and approved and, and validated and made certain Because they tried to kill Him. We tried to kill Him. Though we not ourselves, but our sin caused Him to be killed. But God said, no. No. This is the One. This is My Son. I declare Him to reign with My power over all of the nations on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. To which angel did God ever say that? There's no angel that has been killed and resurrected, declared to be what He has always been, the Son of God, the rightful heir to David's throne. We see this same combination of divine sonship and Davidic sonship as we continue in the second part of this verse. Or again, citing... Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the Davidic covenant out of 2 Samuel 7. And so when the, when the author cites this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, he expects that we know something about the Davidic covenant. And we are told to go back and understand the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. That's what's in view here. 
And I've already sort of opened the door to this. The context of 2 Samuel 7 is that, that David had become the king over all of the tribes of Israel after a brutal uh, civil war. And he's setting up his capital city in Jerusalem. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he sets up the tabernacle. And he says, I have been given uh, a security in Jerusalem. God, you have given me the kingdom. I have a palace, but you're still in a tent, meaning the tabernacle. And David thought that he would build a temple for God. And God says, no. No. You're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. And it's your son that is going to do it. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Then it goes on and he says, And your son shall reign forever and ever. This was initially fulfilled by Solomon, right? Solomon built the temple. David made the preparation. Solomon built the temple. But even that is not a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because this idea that David's son would reign forever and ever and that God Himself would be the father of the Davidic king. It's not fulfilled ultimately in Solomon. Solomon died. And as great as Solomon was, one greater than Solomon was needed to reign forever and ever. And so it's Solomon's son. Many, many, many generations later, Jesus Himself, who fulfills the Davidic covenant to reign over the house of David and the house of Judah and the house of Israel and over every house and every nation, every tribe and every language. Not for a time. Not with a limited territory, but over a glorified cosmos forever and ever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. And Jesus will be the supreme authority in all of reality forever and ever. And He will reign as the Davidic King with the power of God. And then we will know that He will be to me a son and I will be to Him a father. And we will see Father and to the Father's right hand, the Son. We will glorify Him forever. Now let me ask you, to which angel has this promise ever been made? There is no such angel as great as angels are. Let me just say this though. One of the, the glories of the Gospel that I, I don't think that we can ever fully understand until it happens he may not have said this ever to any angel, but He says it to you and He says it to me. We all shall become and are... Let me rephrase that. We all are and shall increasingly become sons of God. Whether you're male or female. Because the term son of God is, is a term of authority and power. It's not a statement of gender. So whether you're a man or a woman, the promise of the Gospel, when you were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, the one Son of God, the true fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the One who reigns in power over all things and over all angels, He says, come up here onto My throne and reign with Me 
as a son of God. We just don't understand that. And, And that is going to be true for every age to come. How many ages are there going to be? I have no idea how many ages there are going to be. I don't know what every age is going to be like. I don't know what kind of authority and what kind of uh, brilliant experiences God has in mind when He says that we shall reign over all reality, whatever that reality is, in whatever configuration God chooses. And He says, you are going to be in charge of whatever I do. And I'm going to disperse you and you're going to have authority and you're going to reign like sons of God. That's why, why Paul says, don't you... Don't you know that you are going to reign over angels and judge angels? Why then are you taking one another to court? Why are you bickering in your churches? Don't you know that you're created for so much more than that? To wield the authority of God Almighty? Now that that is a statement close to blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy because that's what God has promised us. We don't become God but we will reign with Him and with all of His power. And Psalm 2 will be true of us if we're in Christ. Amazing. That's the first thing. Jesus is superior to angels because He is called God's Son. Implication, we are superior to angels because we are called God's sons. It's only true of us if we are in Christ. Secondly, Jesus is superior to angels because He is worshipped by angels. This makes it fairly clear, right? If if angels are worshipping Jesus, then He's not an angel. Because the angels could have respect for, for those angels that are in a higher rank. They can fall under, they can submit to, but they can't worship. And we see this in Revelation. John, uh, who was given this beautiful vision of the end, he saw these angels who were giving him the revelation. He wanted to worship them. He says, don't worship me. The angel said this to John. Don't worship me. I am a uh, co-worshipper with you of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. Worship God. So if angels are worshiping Jesus then Jesus must be superior to angels. Let's look at verse 6. And again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. That's open and shut case, right? God brings Jesus into the world. So Jesus has always existed in His pre-incarnate form as the Son of God. But when God brought Jesus into the world through the Incarnation... God commanded the angels to worship Him. He says, look, I know that He is made for a while in form a little lower than you, but nevertheless, you worship Him. You worship Him. This is what we see at Jesus' birth, right? When the angels go to the shepherds and command them to go and to see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, little baby. And then you have these mighty angels who open up the sky and from heaven they shout and they sing. Well, we don't know that they sing, but let's say they do sing. They, they declare the glory of the baby in the manger because that baby is 
greater than they are. At the empty tomb, angels were there to bear witness, to worship the resurrected Christ. In heaven's throne room, we see in Isaiah 6, John 12 says that the one that, that Isaiah saw in his throne room was the pre-incarnate Christ. And there we have the, the, the seraphim around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're worshiping Him. Revelation 5 Myriads upon myriads of angels join in with all of the redeemed humanity to sing the praises of the Lamb. This idea that all God's angels are to worship Him is taken from Psalm 97, verse 7 and Deuteronomy 32, 43. So these are two that are one citation. Two different places you can go to see this in the Old Testament. And in, in your Bible, if you flip back there, in Hebrew, what it says is, let all the gods worship Him. Small g gods. Uh, a couple of things about that. One, we know that there is no other god but God. So let all the gods worship Him is really fallen angels. The, the gods of this world are the demons that, that dress up like gods and deceive humanity and say, you know, worship me instead of the true God. So, so it, even in Hebrew, if you go back there and you understand what's being said, let all the gods worship Him, what, what the Scriptures are saying is let all these demons stop seeking worship for themselves and let them worship the one true God, which is never going to happen. But that's the idea. And that was understood when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Greek says angels. doesn't say gods. Let all God's angels worship Him. And so this written in, in Greek takes that translation. Uh, nevertheless, the concept is identical whether you're in the Hebrew or the Greek. One other little thing to to sort of tie up before we move on to the third reason that Jesus is superior to angels is it says this it says when he brings the firstborn into the world. And, and so you might get a Jehovah's Witness at your door and you'll be arguing about the amazing statement of, of Jesus divinity from Hebrews one. And they'll just say, well, what about that one word? Missing everything else. And they'll say firstborn. Aha, he must be created. Well, don't be fooled. That's not why this is being made. This, this idea of firstborn is not a statement of birth, of creation, of coming into being. It's a statement of authority. When the one of greatest authority came into the world, and remember, we're just coming off a double mention of the Davidic sonship of Jesus which was never given to an angel. So this idea of authority is carried over from the first reason that he is God's son. So he has the authority to reign as the Davidic king. That's one shadow, right? That helps us to understand the authority of Jesus. A second shadow is the metaphor of the firstborn in a family who receives all of the authority of the father. So these are just shadows trying to put words to this inexplicable idea of the supreme authority of Jesus. It's not, it's not about creation. It's not about birth. It's not about coming into existence. It's about authority. Jesus is superior to angels because He is called God's Son. He is superior to angels because He is worshipped 
by angels. Third, Jesus is superior to angels because He exercises divine sovereignty and authority. Even though angels are impressive and glorious creatures, they remain servants of God. So, if, if you were to see an angel, and every time an angel shows up in the Bible, do you know what people do, what we would do? Let's say an angel just manifested itself here for us to see. And, and by the way, there's a good chance that there are angels in the room right now because they're curious to see what I would say about them. <laughs> and, and so there probably are angels here. But what if one of the angels that is probably here all of a sudden just gave us eyes to see. And right in front of us, that angel just said, look at who I am. And, and didn't make himself any more glorious than he was. Just, this is how God created me. Do you know what we would do? We would all hit the deck. Our faces would be on the ground and we would be afraid. Because angels are mighty. And they are... They have a small a awesomeness about them. They're not awesome the way God is awesome. But relative to us, they are mighty and scary and fearful and, and powerful. And if we were to see them, we would fall flat on our face. And yet, by contrast, they are nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is enthroned as God Almighty. Take a look at verse 7. We're going to contrast here angels with Jesus. Verse 7. Of the angels, God says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. That's impressive. Angels come with the power of wind. And if you've ever seen wind, tornadoes, hurricanes, that's power. And they minister in our world with like a flame of fire. That imagery is supposed to say something about the magnitude of the power and the, the glory of angels. Look at verse 14. But are they not all ministering spirits? As great as they are? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So they're awesome in, in a small a sort of way. But let us just keep things in perspective. They are sent by God who must be greater than them. And they are sent by God to help us who are to inherit salvation. This citation in verse 7 that he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. Go back and read that psalm sometime. Because you know why the psalmist brings angels up? He's trying to describe how amazing God is. And so at the beginning of the psalm, he says something like, He, he wraps himself in light. That's a great image, right? He wraps him. He clothes himself in, in light that is brighter than anything that we've ever seen. And he goes on. He's trying to describe the magnitude of God's greatness. And then in order to do it, he, he, he talks about, hey, just look at who his servants are. His servants are the, are the angels. 
who are sent out like the wind to minister with fire. And so that's the whole context of that citation. So the contrast. We know what angels are. We see the contrast even there. But now, the, right, the author of Hebrews says, now, having affirmed what an angel is, without sort of limiting the greatness of angels, let's take a look at Jesus. Verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, that's Jesus, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The original psalm, if you went to Psalm 45, this is taken from Psalm 45, verse 6. The original psalm is a wedding psalm. And it's a psalm that would have been used when the Davidic king was to be married. And so all of the imagery is talking about the glory of the Davidic king, the merely human king. And there is that awkward part, right, where, where the Davidic king is called God. Your God, right? So it says, so this is a, a marriage psalm, and in the middle of it, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's talking about the divine God, creator of the universe. But there, now in the bottom part of verse 9, there's a shift in the voice. And it refers to the Davidic bridegroom who is to take on a queen. There, now we say, therefore God, speaking to the Davidic king, your God, the God that we've just been talking about in this psalm, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, everyone in the original context understood that when when the, the psalmist called the Davidic king God, what they were saying is, you Davidic king who reign with the authority of God's son. Okay, that was understood. But God so did, you know, wrote the psalms this way because ultimately a Davidic king is fully God. And so that's the way in which the writer of Hebrews reads this. Therefore, God, Jesus Christ, you who are fully God, and we know that from last week's sermon, right? I'm not just importing that here, but that's been made abundantly clear that Jesus is fully God. Therefore, God, Jesus, Davidic King, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. And so now, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, we see that this wedding psalm of the Davidic king has transcended to something more glorious, which is the, the anointing of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and the Davidic king at the same time, who takes on a bride, which is us, his church. To which angel has God ever said that to? There is no angel that is married to the church. Christ alone is the bridegroom of the church. 
And he is the fullness of Psalm 45. Fully God. Fully man in the line of David. There's so much to unpack there about the relationship of Jesus and his church. Remember I said that we will be sons of God? Well, we are the queen of all reality. Psalm 45 says so. Continuing on in verse 13. Which of the angels did he ever say? We'll come back to 10 to 12, don't worry. Which of the other angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? The whole idea here is that this is taken from Psalm 110, the most cited Old Testament chapter in the whole Bible. And the whole idea is that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. This idea that Jesus reigns over all things with divine authority and power. Every other rival power those are the enemies we learn in first corinthians 15 which is the greatest and the last enemy of christ to be subdued death every rival power up to and including death itself will be put under jesus feet to which angel has that ever been given that kind of authority authority over death and life just doesn't happen. So Jesus is superior to angels because he's called God's son. Jesus is superior to angels uh, because he is, help me out here, people, worshiped by angels. Thank you. Jesus is superior to angels because he exercises divine authority. And sovereignty. And finally, Jesus is superior to angels because he is the creator of all things. And we've affirmed this already before. Look at verse 10 to 12. And of Jesus, God says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no End. And this is a citation from Psalm 102. And, and the really amazing thing about Psalm 102, go back to it sometime and look at it. It's a lamentation psalm. And at the beginning, the psalmist is crying to God and pouring out his heart. And it may be that this psalm was written in the wake of the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. when all this devastation visited God's city of Jerusalem. And so this psalm is written to cry out to God and to lament the pain of anguish for the individual, but also for the community. Oh God, there's great misery in my life right now. And then, and then what the psalmist does is he, he transitions. He says, but you, God, I'm going through this misery, but you are forever. You laid the foundation of the earth. Uh, you will roll up this universe like a scroll, like a garment. You're the same. 
You're eternal. You're enduring. So whatever I'm going through now, it's temporary. And I put my hope in your eternal glory. And the author of Hebrews is ascribing this to Jesus. And he's saying that we, no matter what we're going through in life, can look to the supremacy of Jesus and say, You, O Lord Jesus, You laid the foundation of the earth. And no matter what I'm going through now, I know that You are forever. You will not forget me if I entrust myself to You. Some commentators attribute the first part lamentation of Psalm 102 to Jesus Himself while He hung on the cross. He's crying out to God the Father about the misery that He's experiencing on the cross. And then this part, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. What, what these commentators say, I like it. I like it a lot is that this is the response of God the Father to Jesus hanging on the cross, encouraging him, saying, look, you're, you're cru- being crucified. You're taking on the, the weight of the sin of the world and you're being punished. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be put in the ground. But you, Lord, this is the Father speaking to Jesus Christ. You, Lord, Well, Jesus hangs on the cross. Don't forget, you, Lord, you're the one that laid the foundation of the earth. Imagine hearing that from God the Father. Or going over it in your mind, if you're Jesus. Because there was that separation between the Father and the Son there. The heavens are the work of your hands. Just think what's going through Jesus' mind as He's dying for the sin of the world and remembering that He's the Creator of the universe. The paradox... And then that promise that all of this is temporary, but you will remain. I will remain if you put it in Jesus' mouth. I'll remain forever. This is not the end. Powerful. These seven Old Testament citations make the point absolutely clear. When it comes to Jesus, we're dealing with one who is greater in every way to the angels. This is not an angel that we worship. He's God Almighty. Himself worshipped by angels. He exercises divine authority. He will be given and has divine sovereignty over all things. He is the Creator who one day will roll up creation like an old garment. That's the power of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a problem. This is all fine and good to say this. It's it's wonderful to sing the praises of Jesus Christ to glorify Him in this way. But here's, here's the problem. The writer of Hebrews throughout the book, and he's setting the foundation for this in the first chapter, the supremacy of Jesus, and then comparing Jesus to angels, probably because of a heresy that was creeping into the early church, which is still alive in the church in in many ways today. He says, but there's a problem here, and that's what we get into in chapter 2, and this is the application point for us. He says, the, the, the difference then between the old covenant, which was instituted by angels, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And the new covenant, which is is sealed by the blood of, of Jesus himself, 
and given to us by a word of Jesus himself, confirmed by the miracles of God, it's a greater covenant. So, so what we're going to see here as we get into the last four verses that we'll look at today is, it's wonderful to say that Jesus is great, except that that then contrasts the new covenant of which Jesus established with the old covenant. And the difference is something like the difference between a, a roaring lion and a small little house cat. The new covenant, which is established by Christ, is like the lion. And the old covenant, by comparison, is like that house cat. How do you approach these two animals? They're both cats. Which one are you more afraid of? Which one are you more careful with? Which one keeps you alert? Not complacent. Not lazy and self-seeking. You can't afford to be lazy and complacent and apathetic and self-seeking when you're in the presence of a lion. But you can if you're in the presence of a house cat. give you two more illustrations just to make the point it's the difference between a power saw and a handsaw anyone that's used a chainsaw or, or or a powerful tool knows that you have to be very careful it's more powerful but it requires greater care and concern and safety whereas with a handsaw you might slip and even if it cuts your hand you still have your hand It's the difference between an actual volcano and a science fair volcano. One is baking soda and vinegar. The other is hot volcanic lava that comes from the depths of the earth and can destroy entire villages. That's the difference then. When we affirm that Jesus is greater than angels, it means that in the new covenant, in the church, we're dealing with the lion, with the chainsaw, the power saw, with the actual volcano, not some shadow, not some lesser reality. means that we must be careful with our stewardship of the gospel. We must not become casual about Jesus or forget his awesome power. Now, here is the great paradox. I would suggest that it is far easier functionally practically pragmatically for us in the church because of the 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 lavishness of god's grace and patience toward us because our salvation is secured by the blood of jesus christ it's so much easier for us to become casual and cavalier and apathetic than in the old covenant because god punished in the old covenant with great severity Those who are casual. But he doesn't. Because ours is a salvation accomplished once and for all. There's no condemnation left. The punishment has been removed. The problem then is that we can become abundantly apathetic. Take a moment. Check your heart. Is that true of you? Far too often it's true of me. 
This is the whole point then. This is why we looked at this preaching text altogether. The writer, the writer of Hebrews is making the point about Christ's superiority to angels because he wants to wake us up. He wants us to remember who we're dealing with. He wants us to treasure the magnitude of his gospel, lest we drift away into slumber and apathy and complacency because of the great liberties purchased for us on the cross. And here's the problem. We do drift away from the gospel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention. We must give more of ourselves to the new covenant than they ever did in the old covenant. Lest we drift away. And it's so easy to drift away if we forget who Jesus is. He goes on and he he makes a point. In the old covenant, if you broke it, that would result in divine punishment that often meant death. If that is so, then neglecting the new covenant will result in even greater and more severe punishment which is ultimately damnation. The, the worst thing that the old covenant could do to you according to the law was to kill your body. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I recognize if you didn't come to faith, then you also have to face uh, the second death. But the old covenant itself could kill your body. The new covenant is explicit that if you neglect the new covenant, you are not going to live forever with Christ. You are not going to become sons of God. You are not going to reign with him. You are not going to live forever. The punishment is more severe in the new covenant, which the old covenant pointed to and and led to as well. And we see that in verses 2 to 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... The Old Covenant was was given through angels. God spoke to Moses, but because God was too great for Moses, He gave the covenant to Moses through angels. And you can look that up in Psalm 97, verse 7, Acts 7, 53, Galatians 3, 19. Uh, the Old Covenant was given through the mediation of angels because we couldn't have face-to-face contact with God. That's what this means. So if the old covenant was mediated through angels, what of the new covenant that is mediated by the Son of God, Jesus, who's superior to angels? Verse 2, let's just look at that again. Since the message declared by angels, that is the old covenant, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... So there's punishment for breaking this angelically mediated covenant. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation implied here of the new covenant? Because the new covenant was declared at first by the Lord directly. And it was attested to us by those who heard the apostles. The apostles didn't get the gospel from an angel. They got it from the Lord of glory. Even Paul. Paul got his gospel from Jesus directly. 
And God, verse 4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How did God do that? Affirmed by God at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Voice of the Father. The Holy Spirit descended on Him in a way that people could see. It wasn't a dove that landed on Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit that landed on Him like a dove. So people were given eyes to see, at least John was, to see the Holy Spirit in some manifestation and to hear the voice of God the Father to affirm this is serious stuff. Serious. Not to be played with. This is my Son. Superior to angels. At the transfiguration, God said as much. The same thing through the various miracles, the resurrection we've already read about, declared to be the Son of God in power through the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. At Pentecost, when he sent his, his Holy Spirit to speak through the apostolic church, and then all of the different miraculous signs that have happened throughout the church age, and preaching the word of God itself. Thus, the new covenant established directly by Jesus and not by angels is a greater covenant than the old covenant. Punishment for breaking the old covenant was severe. Neglect of the new covenant carries with it all the greater severity. So the point is this. We're not to be flippant or casual with the gospel. We're not to domesticate Jesus or, or take His grace for granted or, or to go out and to sin boldly because there is no punishment for us who are in Christ. And this is what we have to remember. This is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to, to appreciate that in the new covenant we are ministers of the greatest power in all of reality and God has not entrusted that power even to angels. When you share the gospel, you're doing something more powerful than any angel can or will ever do. The gospel is the raw power of God to condemn forever or to save for eternal life. That's power. Therefore, we must take our commitment to Christ seriously with gravity, weightiness, and reverence. What we do here is no small thing. What we do out in the world is no small thing. It's the power of God. You know, I have tried from time to time to be funnier in the pulpit. I have. And sometimes I get discouraged with myself because I see other, other preachers that are just so much, they can bring a levity to the pulpit and also the substance. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong to, to bring that, that humor. I just can't do it myself. I just can't seem to get in that place except by accident. (laughs) 
because when I stand here, I'm just so aware of what I'm doing. I'm not entertaining you. I'm speaking on behalf of the God of the universe. And woe to me if I make light of that. So, we preach for an hour and we preach serious. It is my earnest prayer that every one of us would take our responsibility with equal weight. If you can be funny and substantial, do it. I can't do it, but you might be able to do it. Be yourself. Allow all of your personality to shine through your ministry. But take seriously the commission that God has given you to be His Son, whether you're male or female, and to wield His authority with precision. The message we proclaim, the life we live is the power to condemn forever and ever with no hope. But it's also the message of salvation and reconciliation for all who believe. Go forward with that gospel because the one you serve is greater than angels and the covenant that we are saved by is greater than the shadows of the old covenant. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we affirm that Jesus is superior to angels in every way. We know that that creates a problem for us because we are so prone to treat the new covenant casually because there is no condemnation for us when we do so. Except our casual witness does not bring many sons to glory and it doesn't honor you the way you ought to be honored. So Lord, help us to see the weightiness of the task ahead of us to be your representatives in the world, to reign with Christ forever and ever. Amen.